Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandhu. India aspires to partake in global leadership and expand its already rapidly growing economy, while at the same time dealing with developmental challenges such as access to food, education, and healthcare. Many have criticized India's bureaucracy for not being nimble, adaptable, and innovative enough to deal with such diverging challenges. Prime Minister Modi has previously said that India has a 19th century administration struggling to tackle challenges of the 21st century. But what would this 21st century administration have to look like in order to deal with India's challenges and achieve its goals? And how can one reform a bureaucracy that is criticized for not being adaptable in the first place? Our guest today is Amini Ayar, President and Chief Executive at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi. She is a founder of the Accountability Initiative at CPR, which produces research in the areas of governance, state capacity, and social policy. So welcome to the Global Futures podcast, Yamimi. It's great to have you, and thank you also for partnering with us on the Global Governance Futures program. It's great to be in Delhi uh, with you. You've often said that uh, India has 21st uh, century problems that it tries to solve with the 19th century bureaucracy and uh, state uh, apparatus. Can you tell us a little bit more about this dichotomy and uh, what do you think could be done about it? Sure. Um, thank you. First of all, thank you for having me and a very warm welcome to you uh, to Delhi. It's a real pleasure for us at CPR to be able to welcome the group and very, very excited to host all of you here. Um, to the question that you posed, uh, well, let, let's just take where you are right now. Uh, we, we, we could be anywhere in the globe, uh, uh, in, in the heart of the capital of India. Um, you have every resource that you would probably have back home available to you. Um, but step outside and take a walk three kilometers down and suddenly you're transported into a very different kind of city and a very different kind of uh, set of challenges and experiences. And, and to my mind, that really is the heart of, uh, of the problem uh, or, or rather the challenge that policymaking in India faces. Uh, we are in, in many ways um, aspiring to, as a nation, uh, global leadership. We are economy that ticks in about 8.5% growth, take it or leave it uh, on average uh, and have been doing so for the last decade and more. And at the same time, we are struggling with very basic problems of food, education, social protection, healthcare uh, to a vast majority of our people. And a democracy cannot survive both morally and pragmatically uh, when it functions in such deep inequities. So to my mind, that really is the most critical challenge uh, that India faces today. And we are facing this challenge in a very changing globe. Uh, you know, for instance, I think climate change and the environmental concerns that the globe is grappling with very much uh, um, exemplify this challenge. India has to, India is growing and has to solve the problems of a vast majority of its population, which means our energy needs are going to magnify. But at the same time, we can't solve our energy needs in the way that most Western countries did because we have to address uh, the 
the very growing concerns of the environment that affect our poor more, in fact, than people like me who can lock ourselves up in rooms and stick on our air purifiers. So that's the very complex uh, challenge that we have to uh, go through as the globe faces its 21st century challenges, as a part of India is moving, hurtling fast into the 21st century, a significant portion of India has to be moved along in a way that's sustainable, equitable, and more humane. Uh, and, and I think what uh, adds to the challenge for India is in in more ways than one, we have, as our prime minister has said, a 19th century apparatus to deal with these 21st century problems. We inherited a state administrative architecture from, from our colonial legacy. Uh, we've done relatively little to reform it. Uh, but in the process, as our democracy has evolved and as our needs as a developing uh, uh, and, and almost middle income country have evolved, the requirements and the pressures on our administ- on our state administration have changed dramatically. Yet, um, the, uh, the, the architecture of that administration has not been redesigned to make it more agile and more responsive to these growing needs. And that's, I think, the big stuck that we are in. Can you give us some examples where you say there's a 19th century apparatus uh, facing, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, energy, uh, but you also work on kind of basic service uh, delivery. And can can you give us some examples and also explain a little bit uh, what it makes it so hard to change because uh, you're a scholar of bureaucracy and uh, It, uh, there's always vested interests. Uh, you can have the nicest design of how a 21st century bureaucracy should should look like uh, if there are powers invested into the 19th century model. You have a hard time transforming it. So that, 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 that could take us three days, by the way. <laughs> uh, let me try and do this in five minutes. Um, so... so Take one example. T- take the example of education, a very, very critical, basic human capability uh, that uh, that that is uh, by our constitution, uh, um, uh, you know, a, r- a right of all citizens. Uh, India has made significant strides in ensuring that almost all of its children are enrolled in schools, and more or less ensuring that we have literally a school within as close to your home as possible. Uh, and and that's no mean achievement for a country as large as this and uh, for a country which even 20 to 25 years ago was struggling with uh, you know ensuring that universal enrollment goals uh, that the millennium development goals had committed uh, uh, in India and the rest of the globe to were met but having done that that's we realize that that's just not enough Getting children into school is only the first step. Ensuring that their children learn is even more challenging and more critical. Study after study tells us that on average, about 50% of students in Standard 5 can barely read a Standard 2 text. So we now have a far more complicated problem of children being enrolled in school, uh, but going through class after class after class, year after year after year after year with very limited productive gains. Uh, India sat for the global, participated in the global PISA test. Um, This was, I think, back in 2012. Uh, Two of our states, Himachal Pradesh and Tamil Nadu, uh, were part of PISA. And uh, these were two states that are widely regarded as being states where uh, education uh, gains have been significant. And yet we performed, I think, second last 
us to Kyrgyzstan. So there is, uh, you know, even uh, sort of on a global map, uh, we we don't do very well. Whatever quibbles one may have with the nature of these global tests, they are an indicator of, 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 of something uh, and give you a sense of how deep the problem runs. Now, that's a problem that can't be solved through technocratic solutions. It can't be solved by throwing money at it. It can't be solved by building more schools. It can't even be solved by putting in more teachers. It requires a very different kind of set of, uh, uh, of solutions. It requires dealing with questions of classroom transactions. It requires dealing with teacher incentives and teacher motivations on the ground. It requires dealing with a very complex context in which children from first generation learners are coming into schools. Uh, the home environment is very different. Their movement and migration patterns are very different. Our solutions have always been found through a very, very centralized and distanced bureaucratic architecture, which was the logic of a colonial bureaucracy. And over the years, India has, rather than decentralizing and moving its bureaucratic apparatus closer to people so that the government is more responsive to it and is able to deal with these sort of frontline concerns, has actually stepped back and become far more centralized. Uh, we, uh, we are, I think, one of the the most centralized bureaucracies for a country as large uh, and diverse as India. And, and as a consequence, the systems are not actually nimble and, uh, and, and adaptive. Uh, another example is in sanitation. The government of India has committed to ensuring that we uh, we meet uh, clear India of open def make India open defecation free by 2019. We're literally in the final lap of this. We have a year to go, but everywhere everywhere across the globe, we know that the problem of sanitation doesn't get solved by building toilets. It gets solved by encouraging communities to change behavior. The word behavior change has become part of the vocabulary of sanitation policy now, and that requires being deeply embedded in your community. That requires being mobilizing. Essentially, it requires activism. But a bureaucracy is designed to follow rules. It's not designed to become an activist. The expectation on the bureaucracy today is to be an activist. It's at, at minimum, it's to be what an ad agency does, right? Convincing people to use a service. Uh, at maximum, it's meant to be a activist uh, uh, an activist social movement. And those were the words of our prime minister. I urge all of India to join us in this movement to make India open defecation free. And you've got a block development officer sitting at the grassroots with files, uh, you know, uh, uh, papers and files all over their room, suddenly expected to become an activist he's not he or she is not hired for that not designed for that not trained for that um and and you know bureaucracies don't function in isolation they are part of the larger social and political context within which uh, which they emerge and that social and political context has created a world where the state is seen very much as a source of aggregation of power and a dispensation of patronage not as the provision of rights and entitlements citizens of india today expect the state to provide rights and entitlements but the state even when it's tries fails because it's now become so centralized and rule based that it's not able to be responsive that's the challenge that we face on the ground you as part of an possible answer have pushed this uh, this approach of accountability also from the communities and uh, also through better evaluation and knowing what's what's going on and uh, your center uh, has been quite involved uh, in in work on on this to what degree can pushing for accountability also together with activists and, and local groups be part of the solution 
to my mind i think it is the solution uh, india has a long history of a very vibrant civil society space and a very vibrant uh, uh, set of social movements that have played a very crucial role on placing pressures on the state to become more responsive uh, and uh, that vibrancy has also meant that india has been the home of a lot of very very exciting global experimentation uh, we have i think without a doubt one of the most powerful right to information laws uh, across the world in fact india's uh, uh, right to information law is, pro- is 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 the only one that try to rearticulate what freedom of information means and define it as a right which is a very very powerful framing uh, we've experimented with um, citizen participation methods including something that came out of the right to information movement which is the the act of social auditing where citizens literally do what the government is supposed to do which is audit its functions uh, do so in a participatory manner and use the collective pressure of uh, of citizen mobilization to push the state to respond uh, and i think that that's one of the m- most exciting aspects of our democracy is its vibrancy at the grassroots but um, my work has also made me some cautiously optimistic of the uh, uh, in that i think what activism has done is its success has been in being able to use the tools of the state to hold it accountable so it's used the file what does a right to information do it it takes the government's paper it makes it visible to citizens and citizens use that paper to then pressure the state but what it isn't able to do um i think the assumption is that that will organically happen and i'm not seeing that change happen as uh, at the pace at which it's needed uh is uh, to really question why that file is needed on the first place right and and i and and to my mind the real transformation that has to take place is in that architecture how do you make the state and its apparatus far more decentralized and adaptive how do you push decision making and responsiveness to the right levels of government in a sense um you know uh, bureaucracies have been designed as weberian structures where uh, rationality and legalism are the basis on which decisions get taken and and bureaucracies have always been expected to be somewhat distanced from its people but the challenges of development today in developing countries like ours uh, actually require a far more participative approach uh, to deal with these challenges and in that sense you're asking a weberian democracy to become much more habermesian and and i think the challenge is how do you create that how do you ensure that a rational re- legally bound bureaucracy that takes decisions on the basis of rule of law not on the basis of patronage and vested political clientelist interests also functions in a far more participatory way in order to be more responsive to the needs of the people and that's a challenge that activism is placing on the state because it's asking the state to be more responsive and more participatory and literally embed themselves in the state look at a social audit it's citizens doing what the government does it's embedding themselves in the state and becoming auditors and pressuring the bureaucracy to respond as well as the political class but at the same time the the nature of our bureaucracy is designed in such a way that even when it wants to it finds itself difficult uh, uh, hard to respond so we need to be thinking a lot more of the nuts and bolts of bureaucratic uh, uh, redesign and that goes back to the larger political context you know how do you create a stronger political ecosystem that pushes that kind of design and reform change uh, on the bureaucracy and and that's the, that's the political challenge we face Do you think this can be done while keeping to a central because you're trying to transform a centrally run bureaucracy to become more kind of responsive and in other countries 
this partly works because you have local government that actually runs the bureaucracy and you have a devolution of power that you know you don't just make the bureaucracy more responsive but you also really devolve political power and and have local democracy that actually has meaningful discretion over kind of public goods that are that are locally locally provided you think it uh, India would need to trans- ultimately transform its uh, political system to uh, devolve more power to the state and, and local levels? So here's the many contradictions in India, right? So at, on the one hand, we are, uh, at least are, uh, historically have been, and I think things are changing a little bit now, but we've been, uh, especially in the last 30 years, um, our politics has increasingly become deeply decentralized. And state elections and state governments uh, and regional political parties have had a much, much, much louder voice at the national level, uh, so much so that many described Indian elections of the two, uh, late 90s and early 2000s as a, as a set of state elections elections that influence the national rather than a set of national elections that influence the states. Um, that's changed a little bit in these last four years, but we don't know whether the last four years is a sign of things to come or just a blip and we'll go back to a far more sort of messy, very, very decentralized, multi-party uh, democratic parliamentary system even, even at the center. Um, and, and at the same time, even as this decentralization has taken place up to the state level, you've seen two contradictory trends. One is the bureaucracy uh, and the architecture of the state has been getting increasingly more centralized, uh, especially when it comes to public service delivery. Um, And that contradiction plays out in an even stranger way in that much of the innovation and improvement on whether it is the delivery of, of, of food, basic education, sanitation, that has taken place when the state politics has taken the issue on its reins and experimented and pushed pushed change. Yet the entire flow of money and decision making has been is increasingly getting controlled at the central government level through through we have this mechanism called centrally sponsored schemes that holds things hold things to the top and the second is that even as political parties have become uh, have become more decent state state governments have become have become, come to play a more important role in politics uh, and in that sense we're seeing a lot more uh, regional politics play out a lot more decentralization political parties themselves are today far more centralized than they ever have been and the state parties are are very 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 centralized in fact our current prime minister and the president of the of the bjp which is our national party comes from a very centralized state party structure uh, so, so so you know that's an interesting contradiction that also plays out we have again in the early 1990s passed two very powerful constitutional amendments decentralizing to the local government level we have a three-tiered rural local government architecture and municipalities as a separate urban constitutional amendment they have uh, in some ways most progressive one-third seats reserved for women and uh, scheduled caste and scheduled tribes Uh, in that sense the representative quality of these institutions is really really quite powerful even when you compare to what what the legislative assemblies and the uh, and parliament looks like and these elections are held routinely they are extremely competitive but political parties are centralized so you will it's not common to see a local government village level functionary 
secretary making it to you know the prime minister of india in fact you never see that and and the bureaucratic architecture and the administrative app, uh, apparatus is so centralized that the basic powers the funds the functions the functionaries the things that you need to function as an independent local government unit are still very much within the arms of the bureaucracy so so our sort of local administration is run by the district not by the elected representative of the district and that's the contradiction that we see so i uh, in the long term more decentralization is exactly where we have to go how we get there with all these contradictions and how these get to be negotiated is the challenge for the future how do you evaluate the past uh, 4 years in tr in terms of economic uh, and 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 social reform what uh, prime minister modi has been able to achieve you know i think any government uh, when they come in especially when they come after uh, a, a long incumbent government uh, there is a lot of hope and a lot of expectation and this government was no exception to that rule uh, and i think the expectations were even higher on this government uh, because for the first time after 30 years we had a single party majority because the prime minister himself uh, you know uh, spoke a language of decisive decision making of reforms or uh, attempted to create a new vocabulary around aspirations uh, uh, and sort of marching india forward in a way that would be distinctly different to uh, what uh, the previous uh, government had aspired to um, and and in that sense anything that comes in with that kind of high expectation four years down the line uh, will always be have a sense of disappointment because after all change is long change is complex change takes time having said that i think in this particular instance where it depends on who you talk to as uh, as, as politics around the world is now it's fairly glow it's it's increasingly polarized um uh, and and facts are how you choose to interpret them rather than facts as facts uh, but i think that the disappointment has been a little more than it was than was necessary and i think you know critical things that could have been done differently have not been done and a lot of promises that should have been met have not been met i think two three important things the economy um, uh, i think when this government started out they had a better chance of of doing things uh, because of the way the global economy was looking uh, back in 2014 uh, but a lot of, but, but things have haven't moved as fast as they were expected to and there were two uh, double shocks that came one was demonetization in 2016 and for the life of me i still can't i'm one of those who still can't figure out why we did it uh, because i uh, even if and it's i think increasingly all the evidence on the table seems to suggest that there was not a single goal that it set out to meet uh, that it, that it did meet but even if this were to have been in some world the right policy instrument the fact that uh, it uh, for a largely cash based economy it created the kind of economic ruptures that it did uh, it just seemed to be the wrong thing to do uh, to solve the problems that it set out to and i think that that has really come back to hurt the economy in a significant way and it came close on the heels of the other big transition the gst the goods and services taxes transition um, which was a difficult uh, i think in the best of times any transition is a difficult one i believe not a single country incumbent government that passed gst in democratic countries came back to power immediately after so i think even in the best of circumstances but you know this particular gst with um, all the multiple compromises and negotiations it had to arrive at uh, 
created a set of problems for itself, including simple things like software glitches, which should have been sorted out before it was launched, multiple slabs, a lot of confusion, um, therefore, amongst uh, uh, traders um, about what this, uh, what it actually meant to convert to, as our prime minister says, one nation, one tax. The second important thing, I think, um, the there has been a, a lot of even deeper centralization of decision making in this government. In like I said, no government in the past has ever decentralized, but this one, uh, in particular, and a lot of the power gets centered around the prime minister's office, and that I think has created a institutional environment. Uh, where um, uh, you know uh, decision making at one level is faster because the push is, is stronger, but the ability to get things done gets stymied because in a large country like ours, you need a lot more uh, space to be able to take risks and, and do things. I think the tendency therefore has been uh, big ideas, uh, loud ideas, uh, uh, but the ability to actually implement those, you set unrealistic targets and then you force the system to start chasing these unrealistic targets and so uh, targets get met on paper and the reality uh, is far more complicated. We had been promised a lot more governance reform uh, one of the mantras of the uh, you know during the elections was minimum government maximum governance we haven't seen that maximum governance uh, the other challenge this government has faced on the economic front has been how do you balance out uh, the need to respond to the globe, the sort of uh, and 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 at the same time respond to a lot of the political constituencies that are pushing for more protectionism? And especially in the last budget, we saw that play out. You know, on the one hand, we want to become the manufacturing hub, we want to encourage investments, and at the other hand, on the other, uh, we are moving towards deeper protectionism, and uh, that's a difficult one to negotiate, especially when your political constituents is pushing for more protectionism but one that uh, you know I don't think has had been handled very deftly and uh, we've had a little bit of a pushback uh, there much quite unexpectedly for what was considered to be a liberalized uh, more reform a government that was going to liberalize India uh, further on from what we did in 1991. Maybe as a closing question what difference can think tanks make in this environment you said like debates are becoming more polarized also in this country like uh, they're becoming in many democ in many democracies uh, what difference can a think tank like cpr make having a fiercely independent non-partisan evidence-based ideas focused space i think in an environment like this is even more crucial today than ever before uh Across the globe and in India particularly, the space for dissent is, is shrinking and at the same time the space for nuance is also shrinking. Uh, and therefore I think it's incumbent on all of us as, as, as members of the think tank community to fiercely hold on to our space. And we play now more uh, a more crucial role than ever before to use the power of ideas, evidence and argument uh, to engage in the public sphere. Um, and to hold on to what really is uh, the most central role that we play in the public sphere. So um, that, to my mind, is, is the most important thing that we have to do. Bury your head, uh, do your research, put it out in the public domain and use your research as a starting point for a public conversation. That's the role we play. 
Thank you very much for these insights, and I think it's an inspiring closing statement for the role of think tanks. Thank you very much, Yamimi. Thank you. This edition of the Global Futures podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and my colleague, Torsten Benner, and produced by Sonia Sugarbova, with support from Jill van der Valle from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest was Amini Ayar. The Global Governance Futures program brings together exceptional young professionals to look ahead 10 years and think of ways to better address global challenges. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.